HSUS in their 2022 conference is going to have a workshop in which presenters argue that, quote, shelters in high demand areas should start their own breeding programs to meet public demand for puppies. And this is a proposal that Time Magazine rightly called a shocking idea like cocktail hour at rehab. But it is more than shocking. I mean, it is a betrayal of the highest magnitude, and it is based on several lies. Hi, we're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. Since the 1990s, the no-kill movement has forced on a resistant sheltering industry tremendous progress. That progress includes a decline in the national death rate of 90%, fewer people buying animals and more people adopting, an increasing number of cities and even entire states banning the retail sale of commercially bred animals in pet stores, half of all Nebraska puppy mills shutting down, and towns making it illegal to commercially breed to protect, quote, the healthful and humane treatment of dogs. Because of the no-kill movement, its embrace of the no-kill equation, and its focus on codifying success into law, the United States is on the verge of ending the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals and moving away from commercially breeding dogs in brutal conditions reminiscent of factory farms. But progress is not linear, and continued progress is not inevitable. Today, the movement faces challenges that threaten not only to erase the gains of the last three decades, but bring about a return to 1970s sheltering norms, when dogs and cats were left to fend for themselves on the street, neglect and abuse in shelters was rampant, killing was a fait accompli, and the American public predominantly purchased animals rather than adopting them from their local shelter. The threats that we face today are coming from inside the house, from a small handful of people who are corrupting the mission of animal protection at the organizations which they run. Okay, Nathan, let's just start out by explaining um, briefly what each of those threats are. Each of these threats are embodied by an organization that is championing them. So number one, the Humane Society of the United States wants shelters to start breeding puppies. Number two, Austin Pets Alive wants shelters to close their doors to lost and homeless animals. Number three, Best Friends Animal Society wants shelters to close their doors to volunteers, rescuers, families looking for lost pets, and adopters. Number four, Maddie's Fund and others promote neo-racist voices who excuse animal cruelty. Number five, the ASPCA fights legislation to get more animals out of shelters alive and actually seeks laws making it easier for pounds to kill animals. Number six, PETA kills animals as a quote-unquote treatment for the condition of being alive. And all those harms should sound very familiar to you. Yeah, they do sound familiar because these are the exact things that the no-kill movement was accused of promoting in the early 1990s when we started advocating for alternatives to killing. And it falsely accused us of promoting the very things that they're promoting now. Right. So in the 1990s with the emerging no-kill movement, the goal was singular to stop the killing and replace that killing with these readily available, cost-effective, life-saving alternatives. And in order to fight those programs, which groups like the Humane Society of the United States, PETA, the ASPCA did, they accused no-kill advocates of this nefarious intent. So because we argued that there were enough homes for all the dogs and cats that were currently being killed in shelters, they said the only reason to say that is because you must be in league with breeders. 
which was not true, but now they turn around and they are actually calling not only for shelters to partner with breeders in order to produce puppies, but actually to breed animals themselves. They also argued, for example, that in order for a shelter to be no-kill, that they had to close their doors and turn animals away and leave them to fend for themselves or die slow deaths on the street. And we argued, of course, that that was not true. That it was and a false choice. In fact, the last 30 years have proved that it was a false choice because there are plenty of open admission, no-kill animal shelters to prove it. I ran the first one and hundreds of communities have done replicated it, that success, have replicated that, exactly. that success. But then here they are turning around and saying, in fact, shelters should close their doors, should turn animals away, should leave them to fend for themselves on the street. And in fact, as we'll discuss, some of those animals have died. We were arguing that killing was the ultimate harm and that you didn't have to do it. If a shelter were to implement a series of programs and services that I implemented when I ran a, a municipal shelter, an animal control shelter, you could take in all animals that come to your door and you could do so humanely without killing them. And that's in fact what we did and hundreds of communities have done since. And they, in order to counter that, in order to defend the killing they were doing, they had to make arguments, knowing they were false, that painted the alternative as darker. And so they made the claim falsely that in order to be no-kill, you had to close your doors. And closing your doors resulted in animals dying on the streets. Or if we're making the argument that there, in fact, aren't too many animals and not enough homes. And that is just the excuse poorly performing shelters use to kill animals. And that if you, again, implemented this series of programs and services that replace killing with alternatives. And if you keep the animals alive and you do your best to market the animals and that, that there, in fact, are enough homes for all the animals. Absolutely. And so their argument to paint that alternative as something more nefarious was you're going to encourage people not to sterilize their animals, and you are going to encourage breeders to produce more puppies and kittens. And yet they turn around and now they're openly. They're openly arguing. For, yeah, they're openly arguing that shelters themselves should be breeding animals. And close their door to and animals in need. And if someone finds an animal to re-abandon them on the street. Another thing that's being argued by Best Friends Animal Society is that we should uh, close, close the doors of animal shelters to the public. And again, that is another thing that would lead to the very conditions that no-kill advocates were accused of promoting early on, which was the idea that animals would spend too long in cages or animals would be kept in filthy conditions. And the no-kill movement actually fought very hard to increase transparency of shelters, to have shelters have to report their um, statistics, to have uh, volunteers and rescuers have access to the animals to be able to get into these places. And now Best Friends is moving to eliminate that access. That access that was so essential to figuring out how widespread animal abuse was in our nation's shelters and how pressing the need for reform was, that sort of access that um, the no-kill movement really won for, for volunteers, empowering rescuers, empowering volunteers, is now under threat because Best Friends is urging shelters to close their doors to the public, to volunteers. And they're, it's incredibly important because they're the eyes and the ears 
of the animals. And again, this was something that the No Kill Movement was accused of, that we wanted to create circumstances where animals would be kept in subpar conditions. And, and here they are advocating for the very circumstances that would allow for that to once again become as widespread as it once was. Exactly. Another thing that the no-kill movement was falsely accused of, again, to justify killing and make it seem like we had nefarious intent, was the false argument that quality of homes was inconsistent with quantity of homes. So the no-kill movement was arguing that you can do more adoptions. And they were arguing that if you increase the number of adoptions, you have to necessarily reduce the quality of the adoptive homes. And once again, that would put animals in harm's way. So instead of sleeping on our couches or on our beds, they would be chained in the backyard. And as we argued, quality and quantity can go hand in hand. Now they're turning around and literally arguing that shelter workers should lower their standards even when doing so is at odds with their own core beliefs about how animals should be cared for, to the point that they are saying animal protection officers should not enforce laws against continuous chaining and leave dogs on chains 24 hours, seven days a week. And they're even going so far as to turn a blind eye to dog fighting. And yet without a hint of irony and completely unabashedly, threatening to undo not just three decades of progress, but actually take us all the way back to the 1970s. I always anticipated that the way that the, the trajectory of the movement would be is that we would continue to just have to fight dispelling all the myths about what no-kill was and really making it clear that it just meant replacing killing with alternatives and replacing people who are resistant to doing the right thing by animals with people who actually cared. Or, that, or forcing them to do so. Or forcing them to do so through law. That, yeah, once we had actually found the solution to shelter killing, that the fight would just continue to, to implement it nationwide until that was achieved. And then that cause actually would be accomplished. And yet what's so shocking about this is that there's this effort now not to simply disrail the no-kill equation or the, the success of no-kill by fighting those things, but by... A, just completely having conversations that have nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that 20 years ago we found the solution and, and all hands on deck should be motivated towards making sure it's implemented everywhere. It seems like discussions that are happening now among the people that call themselves the leaders of this movement, a uh, leadership position that's defined simply by the fact that they have a lot of money now is completely... And pretending it's expertise. And, and pretending that, yeah, that wealth equates with leadership or expertise that they're having these discussions that are completely bonkers, like now talking about shelters, breeding animals, or putting animals at risk by adopting them into bad homes, homes that you know are bad. Or partnering with dog fighters. Partnering with dog fighters. Or I wonder if you, can you get, do you have any insight into why this might be happening now? When Redemption, my first book was published, I made the argument that we know how to end the killing, right? And I did it at my shelter other shelter directors replicating that model were having success at their shelters. And those that refuse to implement these common sense alternatives didn't really care about animals. It was a job, not a mission. I was accused of being unfair. And so when Ed Sayers, for example, who was the president of the ASPCA, 
killed an abused dog that a no-kill shelter was willing to take into their program and rehabilitate and find her a home and failing that, care for her in humane conditions for the rest of her life, and they refused. We introduced legislation in New York to make that illegal. As we successfully passed in California, a law that is saving 85,000 plus animals a year, we wanted to make it illegal for shelters in New York to kill animals if rescue groups were willing to save them. And Ed Sayers used the enormous might and wealth of the ASPCA to kill that law. And the ASPCA has killed that law every year since. I argued that the type of person that would do something like that and essentially put 25,000 animals a year who have an immediate place to go into the ground, into garbage bags and into garbage pits is someone who didn't care about animals. And I was accused of an ad hominem, of being unfair, of casting aspersions uh, on someone who might have a different idea of how sheltering should be run. And lo and behold, when the board of directors, slow as they are of the ASPCA, finally realized what an incompetent he was and refused to renew his contract, where did he go work? He became a, a puppy mill spokesperson. Literally became a spokesperson for industries that are the cause of some of the grotesque and immense suffering of dogs in the world today. He's a spokesman for them, gets paid to argue in favor of puppy mills. Clearly, he never cared about animals. And so when you had the heads of all these other organizations fighting the types of common sense alternatives to killing that we were promoting, offsite adoptions, foster care, sterilization instead of roundup and killing of community cats who are not social with people, a behavior helpline to help people overcome the challenges they're facing with their animals, those kinds of things. For someone to argue for killing in the face of bottle feeding orphan kittens, that person doesn't care about animals. And again, we were accused of ad hominem attacks that we all want the same things. Clearly we don't. I want to bottle feed kittens. You want to put them in the ground or in garbage bags. And here we are three decades later and all our arguments were proved right. And the end result has been three decades of astonishing progress. The in de declining death rate of over 90%. That even they started promoting in their publications. And so your question is, Given all that success, which even they acknowledge, why would they turn around and just as we're about to cross the goal line and end killing for all but irremediably suffering animals and shut down the puppy mill industry and get more people to embrace adoption instead of buying? Why would they turn around and why would their why would success? their advocacy not be like, OK, look how far we've come and this is how we did it and we're going to take it to the finish line. Instead, it seems like the conversation has completely shifted and they are now to what coming up with crazy ideas. Let, let's what is animals. what is the reason for that? I, I do think it is a combination of one. They never cared about the issues. And so abandoning the issues that have been core values of the movement, that we should 
as long as animals are dying, regardless of why they are dying, adoption and rescue over buying and breeding. Or is our ethical imperative. Absolutely. The second reason is that I do think that they want to be seen as innovators. And so they see this issue, for example, that when people walk into a shelter, there's no guarantee that there'll be puppies in that shelter in some communities because of the success of the no-kill movement. And rather than figure out how they can humanely and ethically respond to that, because I, I would argue that one thing this movement has always lacked is intellectual rigor because it lacked basic metrics, because it lacked logic, you know, relying as it did on pithy slogans and dogma and fundraising calendars of puppies and kittens and little else. Even people who did not have the skill set that the movement demand and that the import of the decision, the lives of millions of animals begged for could rise to the very top. And these people want to innovate, but they don't have the skill set or the values to do it in a humane way. And then as organizations get big and powerful and they enter the corridors of power, they find themselves face-to-face -face with organizations or individuals or industries that are the movement's enemies. They come to identify with those people, so they bring their ideas to the movement rather than change them. You mean they, they adopt the, the culture of the organization that they, right. the and larger organization, the more wealthy, more powerful organization that gives them a, a not, forum? Not even just that. I'm actually, th that is true. And rather than change them with this new humane model, which, you know, the no-kill they, they They fit in. They come and they fit in. They adopt their the corrupting approach, their right. corrupt approach. But not, I'm not just talking about, for example, like Austin Pets Alive sitting at the table with the uber-regressive National Animal Control Association, which is an industry trade group that literally defends neglectful and abusive animal control officers to the point where Austin Pets Alive is now defending neglectful and abusive animal control officers, but I'm actually talking about where they get big enough that they invite enemies outside the movement. So, for example, in one of their weekly Zoom webcasts, which they share with a nationwide audience of shelter directors. You're talking about Austin Pets Alive. Austin yeah. Pets Alive and Maddie's Fund actually invited a lobbyist for the puppy mill industry who wrote a book on this alleged critical dog shortage and the need to breed animals. They invited him to come give a presentation and you could start to see in that invitation the friendships that develop between the two and the seeds of these ideas that in order to address this phantom puppy shortage, we need to start breeding animals. And so this combination of uncaring, incompetence, inability, inability to innovate humanely, and becoming wealthy enough and large enough that you enter the halls of power with not just larger corrupt organizations within the movement, but outside the movement with like those who lobby in favor of puppy mills. At the end of the day, it is cruel. It is reckless, it is harmful, 
It shows gross incompetence, but you start to understand where these crazy ideas come from. In fighting a lot of explaining why, in turn, each of these things are a bad idea, we'll be stating the thing that anyone who sat in a dark room for five minutes and thought about it or anyone who truly loved animals and had a heart would be able to understand why these are such dangerous ideas. Right. It's They are what our founders called self-evident ideas. Yes, self-evident ideas. Of we course, hold of course shelter to be should not breed puppies. But right. anyway, we'll get there in a minute. Last thing I want to say is in the five-part series we did where we talked about the history of no-kill sheltering and the humane movement and how we got to the point where we are now, you and I really said that the sort of realization that we had come to through all of our years in this movement was that it was always a misperception to expect that these large organizations were actually ever capable of being reformed because of all the things you just mentioned right now that happens to people. Basic human nature would the whole term power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that that, that is what happens. And it is these large organizations which you know, in the in the humane movement are the thing that has always held this movement back. And I wouldn't doubt if this is probably true in other causes as well, because that's the way this model that we have created where we have these nonprofits that get wealthy and powerful and provide people the limelight are so corrupting. So this idea that we would be able to reform them is that we talked about how the best that we can do is try to show a better way and force them to have to keep up. So I would ask you in going through all of these arguments our goal with this podcast is try to reach out to the small grassroots groups that are still sincere, that still love animals, that still care and want to move in a good direction, is to just tell you we are waving massive red flags here and saying, do not listen to these groups. Not only that, but be aware that these threats are looming on the horizon. Because it, Don't make the mistake of thinking because it comes from a group that has a lot of money and has a lot of that there must be that, that there must be something to it. The other thing is, I think people sometimes wait until it's too late or believe that these proposals are so preposterous that they couldn't possibly succeed. But we're going to talk about the proposal by Austin Pets Alive to have shelters literally close their doors to animals in need and to tell people who find lost or abandoned or homeless dogs, for example, to simply go back to where they found the dog and re-abandon them on the street. And if I would have told someone 20 years ago, that is what the large national groups are going to embrace as the future of animal sheltering, I would have been laughed at, right? But here we are to the point where we've had dogs end up dead, dogs that have had microchips that had the shelter done its job, taken the dog in, scanned for a microchip, called the person identified on the microchip. That person would have come, in fact, in, in the case of El Paso, the person who the dog's microchip was registered to said, I would have been there in 15 minutes. But instead they told the person to re-release the dog, re-abandon the dog on the street, and the dog ended up dead. And the reason we're doing this podcast is not just to send out a signal flare to warn people that if these threats have not yet infected your community, they're coming. And to empower rescuers, to do what we've always done, empower the grassroots of this movement to speak for the animals and to hold the line against large organizations that are trying to undo and destroy the progress that we have made. And we have proof that it's been successful. After this little dog was found dead, 
that El Paso Animal Services turned away in heeding the advice of Austin Pets Alive, the rescuers went to the city council and were able to get the city council to rescind the policy. And so not only are we providing the information that people need to know what these threats are, why they're harmful, although as we've said, it will be self-evident, but also give them the information they need in order to fight off these threats or prevent them from coming into their communities in the first place. So let's start off with the newest threat that we've been encountering, and it's quite a doozy. HSUS in their 2022 conference is going to have a workshop in which presenters argue that, quote, shelters in high demand areas should start their own breeding programs to meet public demand for puppies. And this is a proposal that Time Magazine rightly called a shocking idea like cocktail hour at rehab. But it is more than shocking. I mean, it is a betrayal of the highest magnitude, and it is based on several lies. That we have a severe dog shortage, that breeding is the only way to meet demand, that purposely bred dogs make better family pets than shelter dogs, and that shelters should cater to consumer choice rather than shape that, that choice, given that their organizations are supposed to have a mission of animal protection. Now, we go through each of these, disproving each of these lies in detail in an article Nathan released recently called Snatching Defeat from the Jaws of Victory. If you want to get more information about the claims that they're making as to why this is necessary, you can go and get read that article there. But we want to talk about what makes this so dangerous as a proposal for shelters. And I'm going to start off by just saying what I think is really the obvious thing, which is what on earth is to prevent a puppy mill from simply reincorporating as a nonprofit organization and breeding mixed breed dogs in the exact same circumstances that they were breeding other animals and then selling those animals to the public as adoptions because they are now no longer called Puppy Mill Incorporated, but now they're called the Humane Society of whatever town they're in. You have completely now set up the circumstances with this proposal whereby puppy mills simply become nonprofit organizations and sell animals that way. Right. And even if they don't become nonprofit organizations, if you are making the argument as the Humane Society of the United States or your local shelter that there's not enough puppies in the world or there's not enough puppies in our community and we uh, are now breeding mixed breed puppies in order to meet demand, then you have given permission to for-profit commercial breeding operations to also either continue breeding purebred puppies or to start breeding mixed breed puppies. And you've totally undermined any possible argument you can have for curtailing commercial breeding because now it becomes simply a matter of personal choice rather than an ethical necessity to prevent the killing of dogs. Either. Right. And you're not just giving them a green light to go ahead and doing what do what they were doing. Now, suddenly, is it supposed to matter that the—I mean, you and I would argue, we always have argued that the breed of an animal is completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter if the harm you're causing is to Dalmatians or the harm you're causing is to mixed breed dogs. The breed isn't the problem. It's the harm that's the problem. Correct. So— they shouldn't be doing it either way. But how do you argue as a humane organization that the breeding is wrong if you yourself are doing it? And also, we have been incredibly successful as a movement of getting the public to spay new to their pets. And the public has completely understood that the reason for that is because there's dogs being killed. There's in dogs being killed in shelters. Don't add to the animals ending up in shelters. What is the argument now that we have that, that that's no longer an, a moral necessity? Right. Or 
to get the public to adopt from a shelter rescue rather than buying an animal. Which more and more people are doing to the point where purchasing animal continues to decline every year and adoption and rescue of animals continues to go up every year. And now once again, you are taking away the status that now comes from adoption that used to come in the 1970s. From, from having a pure, a purebred animal. Purebred. I mean, from that standpoint, the humane movement achieved something tremendous, right? It took away the status that comes from having a pedigreed animal and created status in having a mutt that was saved from death row at a pound. People are often, uh, you and I encounter this a lot, people are often quick when there's a new animal to mention that they're a rescue. Right. Especially if they are a purebred animal that maybe came from a breed rescue. Right. People don't want you to think that they bought their animal. It's an admirable quality now to rescue an animal. And, I saved this animal's right. life. And, so, and now the shelters are threatening that status and return it to it doesn't matter where your animal comes from or the what harm result right because people people in order to get in you people that saying yeah they they were they were trying to disassociate themselves from the puppy mill industry right. right and what is the argument that people who are working to prevent harm to dogs and cats and other animals in these commercial breeding operations that they can make to continue the success we've had in curtailing those operations. So, for example, as you noted in the introduction, we've had some pretty good success. We've had about half a dozen states ban the retail sale of commercially bred animals in pet stores. About 400 municipalities across the country have also banned those sales. And because of those bans, based on the argument that it is wrong to bring more animals into the world when animals are dying in pounds. So encouraging adoption is one of the primary arguments being made and also the harm that results in those enterprises. And because of those laws, half of all mills in Nebraska shut down. And that is a trend that should continue. But if shelters start breeding puppies. How are we going to get legislators to introduce and pass these laws now that we're arguing that it's not really necessary? We actually don't have enough dogs and we need more of them. If you don't have the moral argument there about why that is wrong, then what is the compelling reason for these laws to be passed? Which, of course, begs the question, do the activists who have worked so hard to get these laws passed, are they aware of what this of this proposal. I mean, do they know this, this looming threat that literally the groups that had been fundraising on the goal that these groups actually achieved all these years, adopt, don't buy, uh, spay, neuter pets. Undermining all those right, arguments. All these, these grassroots groups that worked so hard to get these laws passed, now the rug is literally being ripped out from under them by HSUS, which is now telling shelters that they should breed the animal. And creating the circumstances whereby legislators would not no longer want to pass any more laws to ban breeding. Breeding because why right. apparently there's no need anymore. Right. And one of the arguments that HSUS would make is that the difference between a for-profit commercial breeding operation and a non-profit commercial breeding operation is that a non-profit will treat the dogs kinder. All evidence. All, all evidence to the evidence contrary. To the, right? Right? Yeah. And so these nonprofit shelter breeding operations will 
because you have to be a pretty regressive shelter director to embrace the notion that young, young adult, adult and senior animals should be killed in one part of the shelter while you're breeding dogs in another part of the shelter. So that's not something a progressive shelter director is going to embrace. So this proposal by HSUS is only going to be embraced by the laziest, most regressive shelter directors who are willing to kill animals in order to breed puppies. And given that they are, they are going to be just as cruel in terms of conditions as for-profit commercial breeders as they already are in their own shelter. For those other animals that they are now neglecting. That they currently yeah. neglect. And I mean, imagine the mentality of a shelter director that would embrace this because rather than put their time and energy into finding homes for these animals, which by the way, is their mission, the public exists as a partner for shelters to help the neediest animals in a community that have been lost or are no longer wanted. And you partner with the public to find homes for those animals. A shelter does not exist. It is not part of their mission to meet consumer demand for specific types of animals. The shelter exists to help the animals that come through their doors, not create it. more. Who need right. it? Right. And what are you telling the public about those other animals? Right. You're telling them that they, older dogs, well, juvenile animals, right. senior dogs, they, they, they don't, don't matter. matter. What matters is dogs. puppies. They're not, they're not good. Dogs. You hear so the puppy. That's a great puppy. point. So... One of the dogmas that the NOCA movement had to overcome was this notion that animals in shelters were damaged goods, that they were in shelters because there was something wrong with the animals. And in fact, groups like HSUS and the ASPCA and all these other organizations that were defending the killing of animals in shelters were defending them not just by claiming that there were too many animals and not enough homes, but also that the animals that were being killed had something wrong with them. They were quote unquote unadoptable. And we've put the lie to that claim. And here they are once again coming back and saying we need to breed puppies who have nothing wrong with them because the animals we currently get in our shelters are damaged goods. And they're not good and enough. Be, of right, course, of course, people wouldn't want these animals. We need to provide them with what they want is basically the message that these shelters would be giving. Right. And to your point. So, yes, I agree that shelters exist to help animals, already born animals who need it rather than produce new animals in order to meet consumer demand to the extent that there is still a subset of the American public that wants puppies. The mental effort and energy and workshops and proposals that are uh, being generated to get shelters to breed, turn the mission of a shelter on its head, to become the antithesis of an animal shelter, and in fact to become what has been rightly the movement's enemies, a commercial breeding operation, that energy could be used to meet the demand. Uh, high volume transports can move animals from high intake jurisdictions to high demand jurisdictions. And also, let's say we get to the point in some mythical time in the future and there are not enough puppies in U.S. shelters to meet demand, as long as there are dogs and puppies already born that are dying anywhere in neighboring countries, in countries around the world, there is no reason we cannot meet that demand 
without producing new puppies. Yeah, but I would also argue on that point that demand isn't fixed. People's perceptions of needing a puppy isn't necessarily something that isn't open to influence. Influence. So that again, that is the great betrayal of this proposal is that what did people at HSUS think was the point of all this effort to get people to spay and neuter and uh, to ban the sale of commercially bred animals and try to shut down the puppy mill industry? Of and this to was, reduce this killing, was the outcome right. we were looking for. And this the, is the evidence of success, of success that you're pathologizing it, as it. a failure. Right. And so the American public has responded in a way that I'll, uh, is deeply touching to the fact that those of us that love animals have discovered we're not alone. Most people love dogs and cats and most people and want what? what's best for them. Right. And if you give them a way to meet the desire for companionship in a way that is the best possible outcome for everyone in a humane way, then that the American public has shown that they are open to that persuasion completely. And you have a family coming in demanding a puppy and you explain to them why these older animals make lovely companions and need a home, they can be persuaded to take the older animal. And I know that firsthand. So when I ran an animal shelter, and at the time, the most successful shelter in the country and the only no-kill community, it was living proof. Yeah. And it also, you know, again, highlights the, the incredible misanthropy that has also always defined these organizations. The same lack of caring that would encourage a person to propose this absurd recommendation that shelter start breeding puppies is mistaking their lack of concern for the average person right. who can actually have a great conversation with you and you can be persuaded about why something they think they might want might not be in the best interest of animals and maybe there is a, a better and more humane way to meet, meet that need. And I also think that this fear-mongering that's coming out of these organizations such as Austin Pets Alive, who's giving a forum for the puppy mill industry to speak, this underlying fear that somehow now that people are coming into sh- in shelters in some communities and not seeing puppies means that the sky is falling and we need to meet that demand is completely inconsistent with the reason that 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 is happening, which is that is happening because of the success of all these efforts that we've undertaken. So now you're you're waving this white flag of defeat with no evidence that that's even necessary and, because we keep we keep winning this. And this, in fact, the fact that people are coming into shelters to adopt rather than buy is is, is in itself a victory. Okay, so to wrap this up, what makes this so dangerous is that nonprofit shelter breeding operations will obviously be just as cruel as for-profit commercial breeders. Shelters will be killing dogs in one part of the shelter while they're producing puppies in another part of the shelter. It threatens to derail this hard-won progress we've made in promoting adoptions, into getting people to move away from pedigrees as status to rescue as status, and to pass laws curtailing commercial breeding operations. And there's no reason why puppy mills won't won't attempt to capitalize on this by also breeding mixed breed puppies and selling them to the public or more nefariously, as you said, incorporating as a nonprofit rescue organization or humane society and selling the puppies, but euphemistically calling them adoption. So given all these harms, given all these dangers, who could possibly embrace this proposal? 
Well, Austin Pets Alive and Maddie's Fund. Right. Maddie's Fund has gone on record embracing the breeding of puppies. And while after we criticized Austin Pets Alive for promoting this concept to a nationwide audience of shelter directors through their Zoom webcast, they issued two statements. One, that they didn't think this was the year to start breeding puppies. And they got criticized for suggesting that it was ever okay for shelters to start breeding puppies this year or another year. And so they said that they don't support the breeding of puppies. But Kristen Hassan, their director, did share it with shelter directors uh, across the country. And she specifically noted that the pet shortage was a real issue for her, quote, respected colleagues. And we should give them the benefit of the doubt. And our argument, obviously, is we should not to protect the health, welfare, and lives of animals. Which takes us to the second threat the movement faces, which is Austin Pets Alive wanting shelters to close their doors to lost and homeless animals. And let me set it up before we talk about what makes it so dangerous. During the pandemic, U.S. animal shelters fell into one of two camps. There were those who lived up to their mission, they stayed open as an essential service, and they met their obligations uh, to animals. And actually, many of them had tremendous success finding themselves empty through foster and adoption for the first time in their history. And then there was the second camp who were encouraged by groups like the National Animal Control Association and other regressive organizations to close their doors, which is what they did. So they did less work, cared for fewer animals, and essentially ceased their adoption programs, even though it meant an increase in animal suffering on the streets, literally leaving kittens and puppies on the streets, turning away lost animals, and telling people who find animals to reabandon them. And Austin Pets Alive wants to make that permanent. Yeah. So earlier in, in the introduction, you talked about a couple communities, at least one El Paso that had adopted this this approach and why it was so disastrous with animals being you know left on the street. One animal in particular that and, was found and, dead. Yeah. yeah. And I think when she was found, she even had a sweater on, right? She had a little pink vest she had a, and a microchip. Okay. So the evidence that this animal actually had a home. So the idea that you would just leave the animal out on the street and let... And let, hope the animal, hope the animal gets home. Gets home is is what this is proposing. And the rescuers in El Paso fought back and got this program shut down there. But, you, but you're now getting emails from other communities, rescuers, people in other communities that are having They're doing experience. it in Rochester, New York. They did it. There was a news article a couple of weeks back in Miami-Dade where a woman found a dog abandoned in the middle of nowhere, tied to a fence where there was no homes around, literally tied to a fence and left on the sidewalk. And she untied the dog and she, a young woman, lives in an apartment where they don't allow dogs. So she wasn't going to leave the dog chained to starve to death, took the dog to Miami-Dade Animal Services. This is a dog that wasn't lost, was abandoned tied to the middle of nowhere. and So there wasn't anyone to come for this animal and nowhere for that animal to go to get right. home. But they told her to go back where she found the dog and put the animal back. Leave him tied to a fence. Right. To slowly starve to death. Had she done that, this dog... Wait, and so what was her reaction? Yeah, she and, said, hell no, I'm right. not going to leave this dog. Crying through tears. What am I... I have nowhere to take this dog. What am I supposed to do? But I cannot in good conscience reabandon this dog. And had she reabandoned the dog, that dog 
would probably have ended up with the same fate as Nessa did in El Paso and ended up dead. These are the kinds of things that we're seeing in more and more communities, and it is no accident. It is no coincidence, I should say, that the community pounds that are embracing this Austin Petalide model are the ones that have a history of some of the most regressive practices and killing. And that is because these are these shelters have found a way to claim that they are successful because the animals don't come through the doors. So it's a way to claim no-kill success rather higher, than the, the work of rates, implementing right. the no-kill equation instead. So Austin Pets Alive has given these shelters a workaround that just basically throws animals under the bus. It essentially redefines failure as, as success. And the returns us to the 1970s when animals roaming the streets were a familiar sight, where they were left to fend for themselves. I think it's what's so tragic about this particular model is that just at the moment that the American public is like, again, going back to our discussion about how successful we've been in getting the, the public to spay, neuter, and also to adopt rather than buy, the public loves animals and wants to help them. And just when the American public is standing up as never before, Austin Pets Alive is telling shelters, stand down, do nothing. I mean, I, I would argue that it, there is no better time now to max, absolutely maximize what a shelter can be in a community by harnessing the love and compassion that exists amongst community members to make it an amazing place. And what are they saying? Close your doors. Turn the animals away. Right. It's, it's heartbreaking. There's further reading on this. You go more into the psychology of the reasons of why we've seen this just really heartbreaking, tragic Betrayal. Betrayal of Austin Pets Alive, once a leading voice in the no-kill movement, completely abandoning that mission in order for And becoming to, the no-kill movement, one of the no-kill no movement's biggest threats. Because there's, they're, either they are promoting the other things that we mention in this podcast, the other threats, or they themselves are the genesis of these terrible, terrible right. ideas. So if people want more information, they can read the article on Substack, The Co-Optation of Austin Pets Alive, or listen to a prior podcast we did on this called When Community Sheltering Means No Sheltering. The next big threat is sort of tied into this in terms of trying to redefine what a shelter is away from a place that is supposed to be a safe haven. Uh, and a community or, meeting and a community place meeting and place. transparent and open yeah. to the public. Um, is Best Friends pushed now to have shelters close their doors? Again, a different type of closing their doors, but they want the doors closed to people. to people, right? So volunteers, rescuers, families looking for lost pets, adopters. Right. Uh, so Best Friends is seeking to exploit, uh, uh, like Austin Pets Alive, uh, pandemic-related closures by making many of those changes permanent. Specifically, Best Friends is asking shelters not to be fully open to the public, but to remain closed unless people have an appointment. And while they disingenuously claim that this appointment-only policy will increase life-saving somehow and reduce animal stress by limiting activity and noise levels, this is misleading. For animals, visitors mean stimulation and walks and getting played with and finding homes. And also, and probably one of the most important things, transparency. People understanding how their shelters are being run. Right. This is why these claims are self-evidently bonkers. Because if you are going to reduce the number of people who come into your shelter, members of the public and rescuers who go to the shelters to help animals, then fewer animals are going to get helped. Less people coming into the shelter means fewer adoptions, fewer reclaims, fewer rescuers, which in shelters is a death sentence. 
It also reduces the number of volunteers who go to shelters, reducing the amount of socialization these animals get. And because if animals are not provided mental and physical stimulation and time out of the kennels and walks and interaction with people, it gives shelter directors the excuse to label more animals as kennel crazy and kill them. What is important for the success of a shelter is to have that it be a place that the community loves, not just to visit or people to spend their volunteer hours there or people coming to play with the animals, people coming to just browse. A meeting place, a, a happy, good place that is open and welcoming to the public. You might, you do have families that would go in there just to maybe look at the kittens playing or look at, you know. To play with them. So if people couldn't have animals at their home, for example, they like to come to the shelter. Yeah, and then what do they there. say? They 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 go to work the next day and they say, oh my God, there's this kid, there's these kittens or there's this sweet old cat. And like, I know you like tabby cats. There's this amazing tabby cat. Word of mouth, right? They're, the public is aware of what's going on in the shelter. Uh, that cre- increases. It also holds the staff accountable to, they have, the animals have to be well cared for because people are watching. And it increases adoptions and it helps the dogs not go kennel crazy because they're getting walked. Think about in Tompkins County how busy that shelter was. And while I had a rule that through volunteers and staff, dogs had to get out of their kennels at least four times a day, given all the members of the public who would come and walk our dogs, how some days I would go back through the kennels during an afternoon and there would literally be no dogs <laughs> because they'd all be out and you were like yeah, oh adopters out on a walk right, and then like, no, i have these <laughs> adopters walking through the shelters they saying, don't have any dogs where are all the dogs because right. they were all being played with in the backyard or in the kiddie pool that we set up for them to splash around in the water or on walks and we allowed people to go into the kennels and play with the dogs we allowed people to take the cats out of the cages and socialize and brush and play with the cats and be- I mean there are rooms where you could go sit down and a pile of kittens would jump on you and you would snuggle their little tummies I mean like it was it was literally so we fun. had a room in the shelter that housed the kittens where you literally walked I remember it was glorious and were swarmed, swarmed by, by kittens. kittens right and because of that the animals were well socialized they were exercised they were well rested they were tired yeah and they I, that- were quiet They were not stressed, and we were able to not just maximize adoptions to the point that we were pulling in animals from surrounding communities that were killing them, but we reduced rates of upper respiratory infections and other illnesses by something like 90%. Like our animals rarely got Okay. And that brings us to the point of the irony of best friends selling this as a way to reduce stress for animals because it's absolutely animals sitting in cages all day with no socialization. That is what is stressful for animals. That is what causes illness. That is what makes animals unhappy. And what happens when they are hidden from public view? Well, Abuse and neglect actually increase. And so this effort is going to erase the tremendous gains that the no-kill movement has made over the last couple of decades to force greater public access, to force more sensible adoption and reclaim hours, all of which have not only been key to reducing shelter killing nationwide, but to keeping neglect and abuse that accompanies that killing in check. And it is therefore, again, no surprise that the 
most historically abusive and regressive pound systems in the nations are the very ones that are embracing this best friends proposal. Exactly. And um, if you want further reading on this, you have a Substack piece you wrote about this as well called The Growing Threat of Darkness. The next thing we're going to talk about is what many people are calling the new racism, which is a philosophy that excuses harm based on the race of those who are causing it. Not only do these policies allow animals to be put in harm's way, but they also malign entire groups of people as being not capable of caring compassion. For animals, for, for, yeah, it's it's incredibly racist. So it is. And Eddie's fund. Kristen Hassan at Austin Pets Alive and others are promoting voices like those of Professor Katja Gunther, who undermine animal protection in deference to racist ideas that equate people of color with substandard care. Although championed under the guise of increasing diversity and inclusion, these authors and others like them malign entire groups of people based on the color of their skin. Yeah. So, for instance, Kristen Hassan has featured, has publicized their works and also had them on her show. People that defend uh, dogfighters like Michael Vick, claiming that he was the real victim. Some of the most sadistic animal abusers of our generation. Right. And and a certain and calling them the victim. Right. And it but what's also so disturbing about that from that's terrible for the animals, but what's also terrible is putting up people like Michael Vick as somehow representative of entire groups of people. Right. And saying that we are that it is racist to expect certain groups of people, generally people of color, to provide loving homes for animals. And we need to reduce our adoption standards because those standards are racist because we expect animals to be treated humanely. Right. She said an author got it exactly right when she wrote that viewing animals as family members, letting them sleep in the house, providing them medical care and showing them affection are, quote, middle class white values, while she claimed that people of color treat animals quote, as resources, whether protective as in guarding or financial as in breeding or possibly fighting. So again, there's breeding again. So it's also condoning the idea that certain groups of people should get a license to breed animals. Right. And Hassan has promoted authors who wrote books defending backyard breeding, calling for dogs to be left on chains 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even to the point where they excuse people who don't feed their animals, literally let their animals, chained animals, go without food and water. Sick animals, injured animals not getting medical care, and even partnering with people who engage in dog fighting rather than prosecuting those people and rescuing the puppies that are going to get ripped to shred. What does the color of your skin have to do have with, to do with whether, whether you, you love a dog or mistreated? Feed a dog or let them starve. Whether you snuggle a dog while watching TV or use them to bet on dog fighting. Well, arguing for policies that would intentionally put animals in harm's way by saying that adoption standards essentially should not exist and be uniformly applied. And by arguing that the racist argument that certain people aren't capable of compassionate and humane care. This also completely rips the rug out from under the animal protection movement, because what it does is it essentially says that animals in and of themselves are not individuals with rights. And we don't judge 
the treatment of an animal based on what is the inherent right of that animal to or in their best interest or, or right but how we treat that animal is dependent on the people connected to them right. or the people that want to be connected to them right so the animals themselves are erased they don't matter they're things they're not things individuals. you cannot have an animal protection movement where and move the ball down the field for animals without the recognition that every animal has inherent rights they and, don't under this right. under this scenario. And that based on their biology, there is a right way to treat the animal and a wrong way. And the right way is to feed the animal. The wrong way is to starve the animal. The right way is to show them affection. The wrong way is to intentionally neglect or abuse them or use them for fighting. And we talk a lot in this podcast as we're discussing all these uh, individual threats that the movement faces, that they are not just threatening to erase the gains of the last three decades, but they're trying to return sheltering to the 1970s when killing was at its peak, when the number of animals roaming the streets was at its peak, when neglect and abuse of animals in shelters was at its peak. This idea threatens to take the movement back to the mid-19th century before the animal protection movement came into existence, when it was not a crime to kill a dog. One, because if it was your property, you could do whatever you wanted with your property, so that wasn't illegal. Or if the dog was homeless and had no quote-unquote owner, there was no property interest. So you could kill a homeless dog because there was no property interest impacted. This is exactly the same thing. It subsumes the rights of animals to the interests of those doing the harm. And so there is no harm that in and of itself would be wrong if connected to a person that Maddie's Fund or any of the writers that Kristen Hassan of Austin Pets Alive Champions could do to an animal that would be inherently wrong. Right. And that's very, I mean, it essentially makes any legal progress for animals impossible because as animal rights activists, the goal should be to establish legal rights always um, because that's how you assure them going forward in, in perpetuity. And you cannot do that if you don't recognize that animals have legal rights to certain things because you don't think that they do because you are granting absolution to certain groups of people to treat them however they want. Devastating. Right. I mean, a lot of these attitudes that are reflected in the things that Kristen Hassan has promoted or the writers that she, the books that she has promoted, they also harken back to some of the really racist things that were said by leaders of these large animal groups in the 1970s about how you shouldn't adopt animals to certain groups of people because that would just lead to... It would just end up attacking children. Children in, in schoolyards. In the ghetto areas yeah. of the community. Yeah. So, Incredibly so, racist. And now they have the same racist views, but they're saying, even though they believe the same thing will happen, yes, that it's okay. Yeah, and it, you should let that outcome happen because right. the animals really don't matter. Right. So not only are they threatening to undermine all the progress made in the animal protection movement, they are also threatening to undermine all the gains made in civil rights. We should not confuse these racist tropes and cruel policies with the cause of animal protection or human dignity. Exactly. Okay, we've talked a lot about the need, given that we know we have this model that is so successful, and our job should be, as every, every group that's truly committed to the welfare of companion animals and animals in shelters, should be focused on institutionalizing, as we just talked about, the legal rights of animals. And when it comes to sheltering, that means making it so that 
animals in shelters have expectations of certain levels of care through legislation. Right. Codifying the types of gains we've made in sheltering, the types of programs that have reduced death rates to all-time lows, the types of policies that ensure that animals are provided nutritious food, fresh water, vaccinations, good care that allow them to be treated kindly and move expeditiously through the shelter and into loving new home. Making sure that that becomes law is how we close the gaps in the safety net that exist across the country. So it has been 20 years plus since the creation of the nation's first no-kill community. And now we have communities that are trying to go the other way. So our job in order to protect the gains that we've made, increase the gains that could be made, and to ensure that communities that refuse to voluntarily implement the the no-kill philosophy and the programs that make it possible to force them to do so, we need to do what every other social movement in history has done, and that is pass laws that mandate certain outcomes and treatment of the beneficiaries of their advocacy. For us, that means shelter reform legislation that mandates how shelters operate and leads to life-saving outcomes. But frequently, the biggest opponents that we face are, of course, animal protection organizations themselves. Specifically, the ASPCA is the primary organization standing in the way. And not only are they fighting shelter reform legislation, but they're also actually seeking laws to make it easier for these pounds to kill animals and to kill them more quickly, often before the families even know that their animals are missing. So one of these laws is the Shelter Animal Rescue Act, and that has been written by the No-Kill Advocacy Center, uh, and it would make it illegal for any New York pound to kill an animal who is not irremediably suffering or dangerous if a qualified nonprofit organization is willing to save that animal. This law is modeled after successful legislation in other cities and states that save hundreds of thousands of animals every year. But in New York, the ASPCA has blocked the legislation from becoming law and has done so every year since 2010 putting an estimated 300,000 animals into an early grave. It's outrageous. Wait, why can't we pass this law? Right. It's existed in California for how long? How many years? Uh, since 1998. And every year we introduce the legislation and every year the ASPCA kills it. And it's not just successful in California where it saves about 85,000 plus animals a year who would otherwise have been killed. But it's been passed in municipalities in Indiana, in Texas, in Minnesota, in the entire state of Delaware. And in each place it's been implemented, it has a proven track record of reducing the number of animals killed by increasing the number of animals who go out in the loving arms of rescuers. And it's not just shelter access legislation for rescuers, giving these animals who have an immediate place to go this out, but more broader shelter reform legislation that you know, mandates hygienic environments, enrichment for the animals, medical care, behavior rehabilitation, and that where it's been passed resulted in placement rates of 98 to 99%. While the ASPCA is fighting those laws, they are seeking legislation themselves that will actually result in fewer animals getting out of the shelter alive and making it harder for nonprofit rescue organizations to save these animals and even creating new justifications for killing. So one of the things they're trying to do is allow 
pounds to kill animals if staff determine that animals are mentally suffering, in some cases with no holding period of any kind. So it would basically just be any regressive shelter would use this as an excuse to immediately kill dogs. Correct. There are no standards in the legislation to what mental suffering even means. Oh, no, and no qualifications as to who is, who is qualified to make that determination. Right. In fact, they say as long as any two shelter employees, could be the guy that shovels the poop, the cat and a janitor, and a janitor decide that, that this, this dog, dog mentally is mentally suffering, could be killed before the family even knows the dog is missing and has a chance to come reclaim the animal. And when you imagine how scary a shelter is for an animal who is used to living in a home and sleeping on a bed to find themselves confined in this loud, often dirty, unfamiliar and disorienting and hostile environment that is a regressive shelter that would adopt this. Given those circumstances. You are are creating these shelters that would embrace this are creating the circumstances that lead to the mental suffering if they every animal that enters one of those facilities right. will be subject but, to some kind of mental suffering and, and why puts, is mental suffering a death sentence right which puts every one of those animals at risk for being killed and being killed quickly without ever being given the chance to get out of the shelter right. alive and, and when that very thing getting out of the shelter alive would resolve the so the so-called quote unquote mental suffering. Also, uh, that it would allow a shelter to mislead the public in terms of the numbers of animals they were killing because they would say that it was a mercy killing. Yeah, they were unadoptable or dangerous. Yeah, and that they were, and they were mentally suffering and the public wouldn't expect, you know, wouldn't know what that meant. Put aside the issue of you shouldn't kill animals, a subjective state of mind that we can never really know. And that is resolved by just getting out of the shelter. But There are policies and practices that a shelter can do to reduce the stress on animals, like co-housing with other animals, socialization, exercise, kind treatment, the kinds of things they are opposing in our legislation, and none of which are mandated by their bill. Right. Do you have best friends saying, close your doors, keep... To reduce these things, socialization (laughs) and... Yeah, reduce all these things because it's in the best interest of animals, and the ASPCA is saying, they'll go crazy, and then we'll use mental suffering as an excuse to kill them. Right. So they they get it coming and going. Absolutely. And so if people want more information on this ASPCA effort, there's an article on Substack called From the Arms of Angel. And then there's PETA, which is the sixth and historically most extreme harm that animals have faced in their promotion that the way you help animals is actually to kill them, that being alive means suffering. And in order to end that suffering, in order to help that animal, you give them what Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, called the gift of euthanasia. A policy that Ingrid Newkirk and PETA have endorsed to the extreme, to the point that they put to death or cause animals to be put to death, upwards of 99% of the animals that that they acquire, including young, healthy cats, kittens, and puppies, while only adopting out about 1%, and then primarily to staff that see an animal about to be killed and ask to be allowed to adopt that animal. It's definitely reminiscent of ASPCA arguing that we should have laws that allow animals to be killed for mental suffering. Right. Yeah. And And they're of the same mindset that, you know, Life is cheap. Animal life is cheap. And like this embrace of racist policies being championed by organizations like Maddie's Fund, I mean, they deny that animals have a right to life. 
even though it is the most cherished right that humans have, without which no other rights are possible. Because how do you have any other, other rights when they can be taken away by killing? For PETA, that's not ground zero in the struggle for animal rights as it should be, but rather something to be literally just carelessly and cruelly disregarded to the point that this organization that people mistakenly view as a champion of saving animals has put to death over 40,000 animals that we know of. But as whistleblowers have recounted... Whistleblowers that actually worked at PETA. Right. The number, Some of them who actually did the killing themselves right. that were instructed to go out. Right. And instructed to lie to people by promising that they would have no trouble finding these animals' homes, only to turn around and kill those animals within minutes. For example, in the back of a van, a donor-funded slaughterhouse on wheels. And so that number may be many times higher. I think that the other threat that they also pose is, in addition to the animals that they themselves kill, is the stranglehold they've had on the animal rights community in terms of the no-kill movement and misrepresenting what the no-kill movement is, but also when there have been issues relating to sheltering issues or uh, community cats, things like that. PETA has come out and publicly advocates to legislators for killing policies. Right, and fighting legislation that would allow community cat sterilization as an alternative to rounding up and killing. Yeah, and I, I think you and I have always viewed them as, as the most extreme position, but I have to say of the things that I've been seeing come out of other organizations lately, I could see eventually some sort of embrace of this message as well. They're closer together. They're, they're closer together, and they're certainly making it easier for PETA to make the claims that, that, they, that, that they're, they're making. making. Yeah, Because it's no longer a difference of kind, it's just a difference. Difference of, of degree, right? yeah. You know, like I would have said... 10 years ago that it is hard for me to believe that given that Ingrid believes killing is the goal because she believes that animals actually want to die and then turns around and schools her staff who then argue like she does that killing animals is not only morally acceptable, but, but the goal. But yeah, but morally compulsory. Compulsory. Yeah. It's like what you're supposed to do. Right. And the end result has been that PETA employees and representatives have been arrested for stealing animals from their homes and killing them, or as I said, acquiring them by promising that they will have no trouble finding them homes only to kill them within minutes. And when a movement takes direction from an organization that itself is the functional equivalent of a slaughterhouse, it can't help but get it pathologically wrong. And so if people want more information, there is a Substack article called The Theft and Killing of Maya, which tells the story of a little dog that PETA stole from her home and killed that very day. And also our book, Why PETA Kills. Those so are the threats. Those are the six, <laughs> six existential threats that are looming, that exist in some communities, and that if if we want to protect the gains that the no-kill movement has made and continue to progress into the future, not only so that the killing of animals in pounds becomes a thing of the past, and not only to achieve placement rates of 99% across the country so that euthanasia returns to its dictionary definition of applying only to irremediably suffering animals, but also so that we can build upon that success to protect other animals, no matter the species and no matter the threat of harm.
And, and to achieve the vision that you just laid out, you know, we only need to do what we have always done, which is our success thus far has been dependent on neither accepting nor emulating the voices of defeatism, of corruption, of those who believe in their own celebrity and put themselves and the dystopian visions of their organizations above the needs and lives of animals. If you want to learn more about these and other animal issues, visit NathanWinograd.com, AllAmericanVegan.com, NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org, and subscribe on Substack.